Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with scientists and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. If you've been following along with us for season two, you'll see that we've been expanding our scope beyond just cannabis to cover the medical and therapeutic potential of a wider range of psychedelics like MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. We're seeing a lot of efforts around the world to decriminalize psychedelic medicine, so I really hope this will be a good resource to educate about the current state of science and research on these different types of medicine. In other news, we are on Instagram at cannabis underscore science underscore today. So find us there to ask any follow-up questions or to just join the conversation about some of the topics that come up on these episodes. And as always, if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Today we are featuring Dr. Gould Dolan, who is a neuroscientist and an associate professor at the Brain Science Institute at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She is the lead researcher at the Dolan Lab, which studies the synaptic and circuit mechanisms within the brain that enable social behaviors. She's done a great deal of research on autism and is also focused on the therapeutic potential of psychedelic drugs for diseases like addiction and PTSD that respond to social influence. Today we discuss her research about how MDMA can reopen the critical period for social reward learning in adult mice. We talk about some of the potential clinical implications of this study and what we can learn about how MDMA might affect humans based on this animal model. And we also talk about what happens to an octopus, which is typically a very antisocial creature when they are observed on MDMA. So stay tuned to find out. So I really do want to make the focus um, of this, this conversation about your, your research on MDMA contributing to opening these critical learning periods. Um, but, but it sounds like you had such a journey before you landed there, such a research journey. So before we get into that, could you share more about your background and what led you to this kind of research? Sure. And I, I should, before I even start with that, I should just tell you that when I said yes to this, um, it hadn't been accept, it hadn't been published yet, but we actually do have a paper that just came out in Neuron last week um, where we have an interesting uh, cannabis-related um, finding. Um, we discovered that the cannabinoid receptor one is a molecular marker for one of the two types of oxytocin neurons. So oh, I have wow. all kinds of wild speculation about what that means. Oh, amazing. Um, but at least we done, it wasn't like a cannabis study. It was just sort of like we were looking for ways to differentiate between the two cells. Mm -hmm. And like the second, like the, of the top, like two hits, cannabis was one of cannabis receptor was one of them, which I thought was interesting for a bunch of reasons, which I'm happy to talk about if you're interested. Um, otherwise, we can just stick to critical periods and everything else. Um, yeah, so no, that sounds fascinating. That sounds fascinating. I, I'd love to hear about that. Um, but maybe let's start with, yeah, let's start with your background and then we can kind of go from there. <laughs> um, so I started my own lab at Johns Hopkins uh, in 2014. And um, when I started my lab, I uh, knew that I wanted to keep working on social behaviors and autism, um, but I had also had a long-standing interest in 
uh, understanding how psychedelics work in the brain. But when I first started in neuroscience um, some over 20 years ago, um, you know, as a trainee, working on psychedelics wasn't really something that was um, sort of acceptable for serious scientific inquiry. Um, not that that really was like the main deterrent, it just wasn't like a serious question for me. But, mm -hmm. um, but as I started digging into um, some of this um, social behavior studies, um, which my lab was really focused on, um, it did occur to us that um, this might be something that the um, psychedelics research might converge with. So um, when we first started, uh, we were really um, focused on understanding how social behaviors change over um, the development of the brain um, because we knew that you know, diseases like autism are neurodevelopmental diseases. And so we thought that just as a background understanding of how social behavior and social learning um, happens uh, across development was going to be really under important if we were going to understand how that process goes wrong in a disease like autism. So that was really the main mm -hmm. focus of the lab. So your original research interests were really focused on autism, correct? And kind of that, um, you know, that lack of, I know in some other um, articles you've talked about, you're really interested in the theory of the mind or yeah. how, you know, humans with autism spectrum disorder don't have that, um, you know, that ability to experience the same cognitive empathy. Mm -hmm. um, so so that is that kind of where a lot of this, um, interest or, or focus on that critical learning period started? No, actually, so let me back up because I think it's okay. kind of important to kind of give you some context. When I was a graduate student, um, I was doing an MD, PhD at, at Brown and MIT, mm -hmm. and I was working on uh, Fragile X, which is the leading identified cause of autism. It's a genetic disorder. Um, and it um when i started working on that disease we at the time there was really not a good way of measuring social behaviors in mice um, but we knew that the um because the gene we couldn't genetically engineer mice to um to have the same mutation or have a mutation that replicates the mutation in human patients with fragile x and autism that we sort of didn't worry too much about whether or not we could recapitulate the social parts of the disease in, in animal models. We were really just, um, you know, kind of setting that aside and saying, well, let's focus on the genetics because we know it's the, this gene is conserved in mice. And if we mutate it, we should be, you know, we know that that's going to give us a good model of the disease. And so all of the studies that we did for that were, um, focused on understanding the biochemistry, the synapses, the electrophysiology, the learning and memory, those kinds of um, 
elements of the disease um, in mice. And then we thought, well, if we figure that out, if we figure that pathway out, then we can use that to discover a treatment and then we can go to clinical trials. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of what happened. We got, we got a target. We, we figured out that the metabotropic glutamate receptor was a good target. Everybody in the field got super excited. Um, loads of drug companies invested. There was a huge, you know, super expensive clinical trial. Um, 28 other labs replicated our findings. It was really exciting. Everybody was like sure that this was going to be the cure for autism. Right. And then despite the fact that there were all of these um, positive results and good signs, um, the clinical trials failed. And so there were a couple of reasons why they might have failed. Um, so the sort of answer that a lot of people who, um, you know, don't really understand how animal research um, can help us understand these mechanisms, were just like, oh, well, a mouse isn't a human and we just, you know, that's why it failed. But right. I think that that's sort of a trivial answer and uh, unlikely to be true. Um, and uh, I think more importantly, what you would notice if you looked at the difference between sort of the 28 studies that um, looked at autism uh, in animal models compared to what was done in, in human studies were two things. One is that in animal models, we were measuring all of these things um, that were very specific synaptic biochemical functions. Whereas in humans, what we were measuring was a sort of questionnaire that was carried out by the patient's uh, parents uh, interacting with the doctor. So they were sort of um, reporting, but not really measuring something objectively. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other major difference was that um, in all of the animal studies, we had given the intervention very early in development mm -hmm. um, or, you know, right at genesis. Whereas in the human trials, they um, uh, were giving the interventions because of ethical considerations um, in, a, in young adults and adults, right? So, okay. um, so what age? What age of so like, um, I think the youngest trial had some 16-year-olds is the youngest, um, okay. but mostly adults, right? Mm -hmm. And so in humans, um, and, and we have known for, you know, almost, oh God, 80 years um, that um, the brain um, has multiple what are so-called critical periods. So these are mm -hmm. windows of time when the brain is very sensitive to information out in the world and that sensitivity to that information helps to sort of um, wire the brain and also learn what it needs to learn from the environment. And then once that window of time is closed, really the brain isn't malleable in that way anymore. And so mm -hmm. most people are familiar with this if they've tried to learn a second language when they were adults. You know, it's very difficult. You always have an accent. Um, but there are lots of these kinds of critical periods. So there are critical periods for language, but also for um, things like vision and 
um, hearing. And so, mm -hmm. you know, people who try to get co who get cochlear implants, right, their, their ability to produce language is impaired um, if they got it when they were older, right? So, mm -hmm. so we've known about this in neuroscience, this critical period uh, phenomenon for, you know, 80 years. And yet, um, we don't really have any good ways of reopening those critical periods. And I mm -hmm. thought, you know, that critical period um, feature might be something that's really important for autism and that, you know, most of these kids were receiving their, um, their intervention after when most critical periods are closed. Right. And what is the what what is the critical period for autism? Has it been identified, you know, a specific age group when well, so there's not such a thing as a critical period for autism. What I would say is is that the behaviors that are disrupted in autism, right? Because mm -hmm. autism is still a behavioral diagnosis. So we d diagnose it by um, the, the psychiatrist typically, sometimes a neurologist, um, characterizing certain behaviors as being abnormal. And the two main ones are um, social behaviors and also what are called repetitive stereotyped behaviors. So those are the sort of core behavioral symptoms of autism. Mm -hmm. And so um, for me, it would be it seemed like a reasonable hypothesis that um, the relevant critical period for autism should center around something to do with social behaviors or something to do with motor learning. But, um, but we don't know. And, and we actually still don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. But um, what I can tell you is, is that when my lab started, um, one of our first questions was, you know, is there a critical period for social learning, right? The social reward learning. Um, because with all of these other critical periods, we had actually never characterized whether or not there was a, a social critical period, even though we knew from human studies that there was these, there were these anecdotal um, reports that, you know, teenagers and adults process social information differently. They value social information differently. We know from, you know, hundreds of um, TV shows when we were children about the dangers of peer pressure, right? And that, um, you know, teenagers and children are much more susceptible to peer pressure than adults are. Um, so we had all of these sort of anecdotal or um, just comparing two different ages kinds of data, but no comprehensive characterization of, you know, the ability to learn from your social environment um, across multiple ages, across, you know, all of um, the brain development. And so that's what we really started out to do when I started mm -hmm. my lab. And when you talk about social reward learning, um, obviously peer pressure is only one facet of that. Does that also involve, you know, being able to pick up on another person's facial expressions or, or tone of voice to interpret what they might be feeling? Is that also part of social reward learning? Um, it could be, although we haven't actually tested it um, specifically. Mm -hmm. um, there are probably, we what we know is that um, the behavioral assay that we use um, cares about all kinds of social information coming from different um, um, 
from different inputs. So mm -hmm. we know that it's partially visual. We know that it's partially olfactory. We know that it's partially auditory. Um, and so, you know, it's really, uh, and then if we get rid of one component of it, it doesn't necessarily um, disrupt their ability to tell that an environment is social, right? So we're not getting into the granular details of what social information they are processing, just that um, at, at, at the peak of this critical period for social reward learning, they are able to make a positive association between being in a social context and something we've paired with that context. In this case, it's betting. So that assay is called Condition Place Preference. And, um, you know, people have been using it for uh, 20, 30 years to measure things like how much, uh, how rewarding is cocaine? How rewarding is heroin? How, you know, so mostly for drugs of abuse. Um, but uh, about uh, 10 years ago or so, um, uh, people started uh, substituting instead of drugs of abuse, um, you know, social or other natural rewards um, and showed that, you know, mice like humans find social interactions to be rewarding. And so mm -hmm. that's the assay that we use. So we didn't really get into the granular details of it, but I can tell you that I hypothesize that um, this type of peer-peer social interaction that we're measuring is going to be really important for things like social cognition and being able to understand what somebody else might be thinking. Um, but we haven't measured that specifically in these assays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so let's go back. So you were doing this original research on mice and then when the, the drugs translated to the clinical trials, it turned out that, um, that it was really that heightened period of neuroplasticity that was key in order for these types of drugs to work. Um, well, no, sorry, that is just my hypothesis. Oh, okay, so that we wasn't We don't know concerned. why the clinical trials failed, uh -huh. but the people who carried out the clinical trials, um, you know, wrote up a paper of like all the things that might have gone wrong. So okay, one of them okay. was is that the endpoints that they were measuring weren't really good enough to mm -hmm. um, detect a change that was um, bigger than the placebo effect or, okay. you know, that, um, and, and one of the things that they suggested was this, that, you know, maybe by the time they were intervening, a, their, a hypothetical critical period had already closed. But since they didn't know that there was a social critical period because we hadn't proven it yet, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like they weren't suggesting that they knew the answer to that. They just suggested hypothetically, it could be a critical period, maybe not even a social one, maybe something else, right? So um, this is all still speculation, but I'm just giving, I just mentioned that as part of my motivation for wanting to understand um, how the social brain develops. At a point kind of recent, rather recently in your research, you started to incorporate octopuses into this animal model research. Um, so, so why did you choose an octopus? And at that point, were there other, was there other neuroscientific research uh, being performed with octopuses or, or was this a new idea? Yeah, I mean, basically, um, the octopus research started because um, I have always been interested in evolution, 
but um, you know, brains don't fossilize. So, you know, the kinds of questions that we can ask about brain evolution um, historically have been, you know, pretty limited. But in the last 10 years or so, um, as we've gotten the genomes of lots of different animals, suddenly um, that allows us to ask questions about um, brain evolution because it turns out that um, across evolution, um, mutations in your genes don't um, accumulate randomly. There's sort of greater or lesser probabilities of certain types of mutations to happen. And based on those differences in the probabilities of different mutations, molecular phylogeneticists can sort of back calculate from existing species um, how long ago certain genes um, were um, uh, diverged from each other and across species. And so when the octopus genome was published in 2016, I believe, um, we, I, I saw that and I was like, okay, great. This is going to be my opportunity to study evolution. And the reason why the octopus genome was so interesting to me in, for that question is, is that octopuses and humans um, diverged over 550 million years ago. Um, and so just to give you a sense of how long ago that was, um, you know, dinosaurs have come and gone in the interim, right? So it's a really long time ago. Oh, wow, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so they're really, really different from us and their brains are really, really different from us. So their brains are much more similar to a snail or a sea slug than they are to us. Mm -hmm. And yet, despite that huge difference in the brain anatomy, um, they are able to do some pretty remarkable cognitive feats. Um, and so whatever um, differences they've accumulated in their brain anatomy, they've been able to solve the, you know, like complex behavioral problems, possibly using different strategies. And so that's why I was excited about them. And, um, and then the third reason I was excited about octopuses is that um, they, they um, are asocial for most of the species. There's one species that is not asocial. It's a social species that was actually characterized and um, published the same day that the genome of a different species was published. But um, we sort of, I sort of got interested in that idea of, you know, what about these asocial species? What are they, what, what's going on with them? But I thought that difference made them interesting um, in terms of trying to understand the evolution of social behaviors. Yeah, so, and were you able to, in your mind, were you connecting the kind of antisocial behavior of an octopus to a person with maybe autism spectrum disorder or, you know, another kind of um, neurological disorder that might cause a human to live a mostly isolated life? No, actually, it was just the opposite. It was, oh, okay. that, um, it was, it was because, you know, let me just, let me just explain to you. Um, it's not that autistic people have antisocial, uh, problems there. Mm -hmm. Um, so antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy or sociopathy there, that's all the same thing. Um, that is an impairment in emotional empathy 
Whereas what people with autism have is an impairment in cognitive empathy. So the difference mm -hmm. between those two things is if you ask a psychopath, why did you hurt my feelings? They will say, because I thought it was interesting, because I was curious, I wanted to see what would happen. Whereas mm -hmm. if you ask a person with autism, why did you hurt my feelings? They would say, because I didn't know I was hurting your feelings, right? So those are different kinds of um, of empathy and and in general psychopaths are equal to or better than um, typically developing people um, in being able to solve these theory of mind or cognitive empathy problems right so they're good at trickery and manipulating and um, guessing what you're thinking by you know expressions on your face and those are the things that people with autism are very bad at and for years people had been um, speculating that this cognitive empathy, it's also called theory of mind, um, is something that uh, evolved because of sociality, right? And so um, when we're in social situations, this ability to understand what somebody else might be thinking, it could be crucially important. Mm -hmm. um, and so people thought that the selection pressures imposed by social re living really is the, is the evolutionary factor that um, led, to, um, led to theory of mind or, or social cognition being so advanced in humans. Mm -hmm. But um, this so this, these octopuses that I, um, I got interested in originally they exhibit a sort of cognitive um, empathy behavior that seems to be related not to social living, but to um, hunting behaviors. So okay. I thought it was sort of an interesting way of teasing apart, you know, what's the relationship between evolution of, you know, social cognition or theory of mind to, um, you know, did it come from living socially or did it come from um, having to be a good hunter, right? Because you can imagine wow. that if you're hunting, it would help you if you could anticipate where your prey is going to hide. And so octopuses use a kind of trickery to um, trick the shrimp that they're hunting. Um, and they do sort of what I call the, is like, it looks sort of like the shoulder tap prank. Do you, uh, are, you know, where um, you're standing next to somebody and you reach around them and you tap their other shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And they'll look the wrong way. And, you know, when you're like four, you think that's hilarious. Um, I still think it's hilarious because I'm not that mature. Um, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that shoulder tap prank is approximately what it looks like when um, this one species of octopus is hunting shrimp. So it reaches around the back of the shrimp and taps it on its tail, and then the shrimp leaps forward into the octopus's other eight arms. And so the fact that they have this, oh, wow. this sort of very, you know, convincing social cognition, thing that we've been calling social cognition, but they're using it in a hunting behavior, suggests to me that maybe that's, that it's not just... In, under social conditions that this could be evolved. There are, other, there are other selection pressures that may have driven this. And so the idea was is that if we could eventually understand enough about that behavior in octopuses, that we could 
um, start knocking down genes that are um, implicated in autism and determine the relationship between these autism genes and this behavior. Um, so that was like one crazy idea that I that started me down the octopus rabbit hole, but we're nowhere near being able to do that experiment. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I decided that that's because that's very difficult to demonstrate all of those things that it's really theory of mind and that, you know, they have the genes and that it's doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to start with the octopuses on a much simpler behavior. Um, and so that simpler behavior is one that you know, it's a behavioral assay that was actually, um, it was actually invented to look at um, pair bonding behaviors in a species of rodent called prairie voles. Um, and prairie voles are this, they're sort of like a, a small uh, rodent that, um, that mate for life. And so, um, people had developed this assay to look at, you know, which, so which how much did they like being in the same vicinity as their pair bonded mate. And then people have also used it to look at um, social approach behaviors in other rodents like mountain voles and um, mice and rats. Um, and so we just decided to look at that one with octopuses. And the reason we chose that behavioral assay as opposed to something like condition place preference um, is because um, in that assay, what happens is you put um, you, you put the, well, in this case, the octopus, you put it in a, an aquarium, you divide it up into three segments. On one side, you have a little flower pot overturned with a toy under it. And on the other side, you have uh, another flower pot turned over and it's got an octopus in it. And then you just put the octopus in the middle and uh, the subject octopus in the middle. And then you just measure how much time they spend in each of the three chambers. And, um, that's and that's why it's called the three-chambered social approach task. Um, and um, we did we chose that one because the other octopus is under a flower pot. So in the case of octopuses, because they're asocial, we were worried that if we allowed them to just interact freely, that they would kill each other. Um, so because they're so asocial, um, so we we definitely wanted an assay where they could you know, see each other, smell each other, touch each other, but couldn't actually interact with each other to the point where they could harm each other. Um, so that's why we chose that one. Okay. So in the control group of this experiment with uh, the octopuses that were not on MDMA, how were they acting? What were their um, behaviors that you observed? Yeah. So kind of like what you might expect for an asocial species, they, we put them in the tank, they do like kind of one lap around and but then after they explored the whole arena of the tank, they spent most of their time on the side um, uh, with the toy object. And we don't think that was because they were particularly interested in the toy objects. They didn't like spend any um, special amount of focus or interest in the toy object. It was, we think that that was probably just because it was the furthest point in the tank, furthest away from the other octopus. It so was they, just the asocial behavior that you would typically observe right. in an aquarium. So mm -hmm. they spend most of their time as far away from the other octopus as they could get. And um, then how did that, right, and how did that contrast with the, the octopuses that were given MDMA? What kind of behavioral changes did you observe <laughs> yeah. with them? So, you know, when we gave them the MDMA, um, they went and, you know, again, they, they were in the tank, um, and on a, very right from the start, 
um, they looked very different. And I can describe what they look like, but they spent more time um, on the side with the other octopus. And what's more is, is that they didn't just spend more time on that side of the tank. Um, when they were on MDMA, they were much more interactive. So their body posture changed. They became, they spread out all of their arms and kind of, you know, um, draped them over the other uh, octopus's flower pot. Um, and they were really much more interactive with all eight of their arms, um, as opposed to when they were in the control condition before they got the MDMA, even when they were on the other side with the other octopus, they would sort of be very reserved and maybe reach out one arm at a time and then quickly pull it back. Whereas when they were on the MDMA, they were in this very different relaxed posture and, and sort of spending a huge amount of time on that side. Um, and then they also did a couple of other things that were, um, we didn't quantify, but we just noted that they were different and sort of um, were worthy of further study, um, which is basically that, um, you know, they seem to have uh, a lot more play behavior. So, you know, one of the animals spend a lot of time um, sort of uh, playing with the air stone that we were using to bring oxygen into the water. Um, another one spent some time doing backflips. Another one kept going, swimming through the hole at the bottom of the tank and then doing like a jumping out of the water and flipping over into the other side. You know, so they seem sort mm -hmm. of like playful behaviors. Um, and are those behaviors that you normally would observe in an octopus? Like no, we never. never. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like normally, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, normally you put them in the tank, and they're they're benthic, so that means that they'll sink to the bottom, and then they'll kind of like creep along the bottom, um, and then you know maybe kind of swim a little bit, but you know very close to the bottom because you know um, octopuses are delicious, and everybody likes to eat them, so they're not you know. They're, they're, they're used to kind of being very, um, um, you know, they kind of creep along and, and don't like um, expose huge parts of their bodies. They just get from one good hiding place to another, typically. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so when they were on the MDMA, though, they looked very different. You know, they, they were sort of, it almost looked like they were dancing. You know, they had... There are all eight arms spread out, like almost like an umbrella um, and sort of floating and drifting and arms kind of, um, you know, it looked like they were sort of drifting like a ballerina would, the arms um, through the water. Um, oh, wow. That must have been so fun to watch. Yeah. No, it was fun to watch. And, um, and I definitely think that we'd need different um, measurements to be able to quantify that, but it was so impressive um, how different it was from their behavior when they were not on uh, MDMA that mm -hmm. I'm convinced that, you know, we would be able to quantify this with, you know, more study. And if I understand correctly, did you also give the octopuses psychostimulant cocaine? No, we did not a different experiment. No, we, we, tried a okay. bunch of different doses of MDMA just because we okay. didn't know what the right dose of MDMA was going to be. I mean, to be honest, mm -hmm. I thought there was no way that this experiment was going to work. Honestly, I oh, really? just okay. thought like, okay, look, their, their serotonin transporter, the CERT gene is like, you know, 550 million years different from 
a mouse or a human. Um, there's no way it's going to be similar enough or that even if it is similar enough, it's going to do the same thing, right? Because serotonin has been implicated in almost every behavior that you can think of from sleep to eating to, you know, uh, temperature regulation, everything, right? And so it might have been that MDMA could find something to bind to in an octopus brain, but that it would cause some other behavior that has nothing to do with social behavior, right? And so I, that's what I thought was going to happen. I thought we were going to, it was, we were going to have to give massive doses and then we were going to see, you know, some behavioral change, like a change in, I don't know, locomotor behavior or something else, right? I just didn't think that it was going to be like, um, like what mammals do on MDMA. And so we started really, really high. And when they were on the very high doses, like a thousand times what you would, you know, normally take as a human, um, they, it, it very much looked like amphetamine does in humans, right? It, it was this very, okay. um, very uh, hypervigilant posture and um, they, you know, they just looked like they were, you know, a little bit paranoid and, and looking, um, you know, a little bit um, freaked out. Right. Mm -hmm. But they weren't, they weren't like freaked out, freaked out because I, I hate using that because, you know, the, the, um, I don't want people to think that, you know, that we were really upsetting the animals because, the truth is, is that when octopuses get really upset, they will ink as a mechanism to get away. So they'll just spurt out all this ink. Um, and so they never inked. Um, so we don't think that they were, you know, stressed in that way, but they definitely looked um, sort of like they would if you had given them amphetamine or cocaine. Um, okay. what, but we had never did that experiment. I'm just basing that off of what mice and humans look like when you give them amphetamine and cocaine. And, and that sort of makes sense because we know that in humans at very high doses of MDMA, it does cause that sort of um, hypervigilant, um, you know, it does provoke some degree of anxiety um, and hypervigilance in humans as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how might we start to be able to extrapolate some of the results from, from this study and this research and apply it to humans, especially when we are looking at these um, pro-social behaviors that the, the MDMA seems to create or right. induce in these animal models? Yeah, so I think the, the most important take-home message for the octopus study is, is that, you know, um, when people do human research, um, typically what gets reported in, in the lay press is, you know, we gave a human a whatever drug um, intervention, playing Tetris or whatever it was, while they were in the fMRI machine. And we saw that this brain region and that brain region lit up. And so we think that this brain region or that brain region is important or not important for the activity of this drug, right? That's, that's typically the story that gets reported. And, um, and so for things like MDMA and LSD, you know, typically you hear things like, oh, well, the amygdala is important, or the nucleus accumbens is important, or, you know, the default mode network is important. But um, what the octopus study tells us is, is that well, an octopus doesn't have any of those brain regions. There's no nucleus accumbens, there's no cortex, there's no amygdala. They have a totally different brain. 
And yet, um, because they have a similar enough molecular, um, uh, molecularly conserved binding site for these drugs, they do the same behavior. And so what that tells us is, is that our understanding of how these drugs are working are not about brain regions, but they're really about molecules. And then if we're really gonna understand how these, these drugs are working, we need to understand what they're doing at the molecular level. Um, I think that's probably the most surprising and important take home message of of the octopus study is, is that we should not be reading too much into these brain imaging studies in terms of understanding exactly what they're doing um, and that we really need to know what's happening at the level of molecules. So when you actually were looking, were, and were you able to look at um, the octopus brain after this experiment and kind of understand in terms of neurotransmitters and serotonin what, what had changed? No, we, we didn't do those experiments. Um, we actually sent those animals back to Woods Hole um, because they were part of, um, they were, you know, we, they were going to be bred um, for, you know, making babies. Um, so okay. uh, we didn't actually, we didn't do any, any other experiments on it, but we definitely want to do those experiments. Um, we want to say, okay, well, you know, we have this evidence, but what we really want to know is if we block the serotonin transporter, does it block this behavior? Where in the octopus brain does this effect seem to matter? So if we block it in the vertical lobe versus, you know, the subvertical lobe, where is it? And then the idea... And what do you mean when you say block it? Um, so like, for example... Um, the serotonin transporter, the other drug that most people have heard of that um, interacts with the serotonin transporter, um, besides serotonin itself, is Prozac. So the selective reuptake inhibitors, the reuptake transporter that they are blocking is the serotonin transporter. And in fact, MDMA and Prozac have, um, so Prozac is, is the trade name of these SSRIs. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, uh, they, they interact at kind of the same binding pocket, except whereas Prozac binds to that serotonin transporter and blocks um, serotonin from being sucked up out of, the, um, out of the synapse, and that makes lots of serotonin be available in the synapse. What MDMA does is it actually reverses the direction of the transporter. So instead of sucking up serotonin, now it's spitting out serotonin lots of serotonin into the into the synaptic cleft and if you give mdma at the same time as prozac um, then mdma doesn't do anything um, because it's competing for that binding site with uh, prozac and mm -hmm. so it's block prozac blocks the serotonin transporter um, at the place where mdma is trying to get in there and do its thing um, so that's what I mean by block it. But we can do that in other ways as well. We can genetically engineer um, the, the serotonin transporter to not work that way, to be absent completely. Um, we can genetically engineer any of the serotonin receptors to not be there. Um, so those are all kind of future experiments that will tell us different aspects of how that mechanism works. And ultimately our goal is to be able to say, okay, um, here's the circuit, the microcircuit that we 
can that we need to accomplish this behavior in an octopus. And here's the microcircuit that we need to accomplish the same behavior in mammals. And even though they're made up of different components and have different brain region uh, instantiations, the similarities might be something like you need to have an, you know, an octopressinergic input and a serotonergic input and a glutamatergic input all converge and do some sort of calculation. And it's that sort of understanding of the, um, what are the, um, the motifs, what are the rules for building complexity out of simple parts, um, that's what we're really trying to understand. And that will tell us how do you, like that will tell us the hard question, like that will, that will answer the hard question of like why or how this is uh, enabled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to go back to your earlier point on um, cognitive empathy and how you, you explained, which I thought was really interesting, the, the difference between um, we use cognitive empathy in order in social environments in order to gain approval from our peers or to belong or to fit in. But cognitive empathy also is useful in terms of hunting or, you know, acting devious in, in some mm-hmm. ways. So, so I'm wondering from what you observe from these experiments that MDMA, at least when, when it's, when it's given to octopus, is it who, who already have, you know, they already have the cognitive empathy, but it encrypt, it, it increases pro-social behavior. Um, so I'm wondering when it comes to humans, what kind of humans do you think would benefit most from MDMA? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I, I, the way that I see the octopus work is, is that it's not really um, directly uh, interesting in terms of therapeutic clinical application. The MDMA work right now in octopus is really sort of curiosity driven. And I don't mean that in any way as a knock on how important I think those behave that those studies are, because honestly, mm-hmm. I think that we need more curiosity based research these days. We've been pressured by, you know, sort of funding agencies and pharmaceutical companies to only focus on things that are um, going to immediately be translated into um, human uh, clinical trials, and I think that that is a huge mistake, and I can give you a really good example of why that's such a huge mistake. Um, I'm just going to, this is just a sidebar, but I, I really think it's important to, to say this, um, because, you know, I don't want, I don't want it to come across that the only reason to do this research is to do it for therapeutics. It's curiosity-based science is super important. Um, So the best example of that that I know of is is that um, in the late 60s, um, the National Science Foundation funded Thomas Brock to go and study in Yellowstone National Park um, these weird bacteria that were able to live in thermal vents in these um, hot springs in Yellowstone Park. And he was just curious. He was like, how is it that these animals, these bacteria rather, can um, survive at these extremely high temperatures? And he discovered that the reason that they were able to survive at those temperatures is because they have this special enzyme that doesn't fall apart at high temperatures. And that that enzyme is 
uh, it's called TAC polymerase, and it's an enzyme that allows those bacteria to do DNA replication at very, very high temperatures. You know, some years later, <laughs> like 10, 15 years later, it turns out that that TAC polymerase um, is the enzyme that was used to make the test that we now call PCR or polymerase chain reaction. And today we use that PCR test for almost everything in, in um, biology, right? So everything from COVID tests to paternity tests to cancer screening to genetically engineering animals for research, right? All of those things require the PCR test, which would never have come about if, you know, 60 years ago, somebody hadn't just been studying something just for the sake of curiosity, right? And so I just don't, I think that if we limit ourselves to only things that we can right now see what their therapeutic benefit might be, right. we will miss out on all of those things that may not have any practical implication right now, but in 15 years from now, somebody will be like, gosh, I wish there was an enzyme that could, you know, work at super high degree, uh, high temperatures, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think there does tend to be a tendency to say, oh, at least, and especially um, when we're looking at this research and saying, well, what does this mean for humans and who should we be giving MDMA to it? And maybe those, that's not the question right now. So I, I appreciate so you sharing that. Yeah, so that's and, the octopus side of it. But I do think that there is, for the critical period study, that has a very clear clinical implication. And I can tell you about that. So, yeah, and for the critical period, yeah, what, why don't you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, so the, the critical period, I didn't actually finish telling you about that story. So basically, we defined this critical period in the mice. We discovered that similar to what people have sort of reported or, you know, kind of done spot testing in humans, it does seem to the maximum social reward learning that we see in these animals, um, these mice, is uh, around postnatal day 42, which, you know, roughly is equivalent to a 12 or 13 year old in a human, okay? Mm -hmm. And so that's when they, they have the maximum ability to learn this uh, association between liking being in a social environment and the social environment itself. Um, and so um, that was interesting. But then we were like, okay, well, what's the mechanism underlying that? And we looked at synaptic plasticity in a brain region called the nucleus accumbens, which is really important for, has been implicated in all kinds of, um, it's sort of like the sex, drugs, and rock and roll part of the brain. It's the part of the brain that really um, is important for um, encoding the reward value of drugs of abuse. And it turns out social behaviors as well. And... Um, and we, so we looked at whether or not uh, oxytocin was able to induce synaptic plasticity in that brain region and whether that ability of oxytocin to induce synaptic plasticity changed over the course of uh, brain development. And it did, and it changed at kind of the same um, time course that the behavioral learning changed. And so we were able to correlate that oxytocin synaptic plasticity with the uh, critical period for social reward learning. And so we thought, okay, these things are the mechanistically related. This oxytocin plasticity seems to be underlying this behavioral um, change over development. 
So if we want to reopen this critical period later in life, maybe we can use oxytocin to do it. But it turns out that oxytocin does not cross the blood-brain barrier. So you might have heard, you know, in the lay press that, you know, people are using intranasal oxytocin and it's, you know, causing all these great things. Um, it, it, if it does anything, it's doing it systemically and indirectly and not directly targeting the oxytocin neurons because intranasal oxytocin does not get into the brain. You know, there have been some spurious claims that it does, but when people have gone back and looked carefully, um, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It's just staying in your, in your systemic circulation um, where it gets degraded very, very quickly, so within five minutes. Um, so we thought, okay, intranasal oxytocin is a dead end, but we know from some of these reports in the literature that MDMA seems to also be causing these oxytocin neurons to um, light up and express immediate early genes and other things that made it and, and release oxytocin into the, um, into the brain. And so we decided to look at whether or not that was also true in the, in the part of the brain that we think was important for this behavior. So we looked at MDMA's ability to induce um, oxytocin-mediated plasticity in the nucleus accumbens, um, and it did. And then we said, okay, great. So if all of that's true, maybe MDMA is the drug that will allow us to reopen this critical period in adulthood. Mm -hmm. So that experiment was like this. We gave the MDMA, and then we waited for 48 hours. And so we, we wanted to wait because we didn't want to be measuring the acute prosocial effects of MDMA in these mice. Um, we wanted to measure what happens when that MDMA is completely gone. Um, mm -hmm. Does it change the ability of the animals to have social reward learning in adulthood? Mm -hmm. so Once it's out MDMA, of their system. Huh? Yeah, totally. MDMA is totally out of their system. Mm -hmm. What is their social reward learning like? And so okay. when we did this, um, in the animals that had gotten MDMA, we saw social reward learning in adulthood that was of the same magnitude as the social reward learning that we saw in juveniles, whereas if we gave them saline, they had nothing. So this was super exciting because it meant that we could use MDMA um, to cause this opening of the critical period. And then we were tr thinking about the clinical trials for MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder when we were trying to figure out, is this reopening of the critical period the mechanism for why uh, MDMA is working so well in this clinical context of PTSD? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that is been a feature of all of the psychedelic drugs um, for clinical trials and also for their psychedelic effects is that they um, have what's called set and setting dependence. So, um, you know, if you give MDMA and, or sorry, if you take a bunch of MDMA and you go to a rave, um, you don't come back spontaneously recovered from PTSD. That's just not a thing, right? You have to take MDMA in the right clinical setting. Um, same with the other psychedelics, right? They, they mm -hmm. depend on you being in the right mindset and the right setting in order for them to have these um, both psychedelic and uh, therapeutic effects, right? And the, and the tenor of the trip can change dramatically depending on what 
what those conditions are. And so we wanted to know whether or not we could reproduce that set and setting dependence in, um, in our uh, critical period reopening. And so we did an experiment where we compared giving MDMA in a social setting versus giving MDMA in an isolation setting and whether the, either of those things were equally able to open the critical period. And it mm -hmm. turns out that only when we gave MDMA in the social setting and not when we gave it in the isolation setting was it re able to reopen this critical period. So to us, that says, okay, unlike other things that people have seen when they give MDMA to mice, um, which don't care about set and setting, so like the anxiolytic properties of MDMA generalize to all kinds of settings, it doesn't really matter. Right. Um, whereas this seemed to really care about the set and setting, or rather the setting. We can't measure mindset in a mouse. Um, mm -hmm. And so that to us was the uh, a first really important clue that this is underlying the therapeutic efficacy of MDMA. And then the second important clue was that um, the social setting. So social setting, right? Okay. So that the that mouse was surrounded by other yes, peers. Okay. That's right. And how many? Was one sufficient or did it prefer to be in like Typically a group? Typically our experiments are two to five. Um, okay. But, um, you, you know, it kind of depends on how many are available and, mm -hmm. you know, lots mm -hmm. of other things. But we've, we've measured social reward learning and uh -huh. requires, you know, we can get it even with a pair. Um, but we didn't do, we didn't systematically look at, you know, how many it has to be. I think that the idea is that um, um, they just can't be by themselves. And I guess what I, what I, I just want to clarify, and you said you got the same results when you looked at juvenile mice versus young adult mice or adult mice. Yeah, so juvenile, so just to give you a sense of it, the juvenile mice, let's say, um, spent 20% more time in the bedding that they associated with social. Um, mm -hmm. And normally adults who haven't been treated MDMA spend equal amount of time in the social versus the isolate uh, bedding, right? Okay. Uh, the bedding that they associate with social versus the bedding that they associate with isolate. Mm -hmm. But after MDMA treatment, um, the adult animals went back to spending roughly 20% more time in the, in the bedding they associate with social, just like they had done when they were juveniles. Okay. Okay. So that's, and I think that's a really fascinating study, or that's a really fascinating finding because that shows maybe if it were relevant in the clinical setting that we can kind of reactivate that um, neuroplasticity or, or that social behavior that we had, that critical learning period that we had as children or as juveniles. That's right. That's right. That's exactly the idea. The idea is that, um, that we're sort of bringing back that level of, um, of uh, of plasticity or um, I call it the open state um, mm -hmm. for social learning, um, bringing it back from uh, in adulthood to the way it was in juveniles. And so, right, you get the mind of a of an adolescent or a child for the period right. of time. Yeah, but and then also you also did emphasize though that this is um, you, you wanted to part of the study was observing the behavior. 48 hours after right. they had, yeah, correct? So that a, yeah, so that that's actually another feature of it that I think is super okay. exciting, uh, which is that, you know, um, I think at least my enthusiasm for um, 
you know, psychedelics as a potential therapy, and especially MDMA, much more than, say, ketamine, is, is that MDMA's effects last for a really long time. So the longest mm -hmm. time point that people have looked out is uh, three years out from the original MDMA single-dose trial, right? So it has these huge, long-lasting effects on um, PTSD, whereas ketamine, for example, um, you give it and the effects, the antidepressant effects only last about a week and then you have to take it again. And this is, you know, the big drug companies love this, right? Because it fits right in their business model of right. being able to not cure the disease, but, you know, give you a therapy that you have to be on for the rest of your life, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the psychedelics, in my view, um, have the potential to transform psychiatric medicine by actually curing and having a durable effect that, you know, you, you don't have to keep taking the drug over and over again. You just, you're just cured. <laughs> That's yeah. Not, and do you have, ha, are, are there any facets of the experiment that start to indicate when the effects might wear off in these yeah, animals? So we, because we were interested in that aspect of it, we looked at MDMA and um, we saw that, you know, 48 hours, at six hours, we looked at the time course. So at six hours, it was starting to come up, the social, like, the, it was starting to reopen. By 48 hours, it was maximally reopen. It stayed open for another two weeks. But when we looked all the way a month out, it had come back down. And so it's not a one-to-one -one relationship. Mice only live for two years. So, um, you know, in theory, that two weeks of reopen could translate to two months in humans, right? So it's a really long time that it stays reopen. And this is mm -hmm. important not only because I think it, it matches this effect that we see in the human clinical trials, but also tells us that the window of time that we want people to be thinking about their PTSD and reorganizing their memories around the PTSD, um, that window is actually very long. And that the psychiatrists who are running these trials need to treat the not just the psychedelic, acute psychedelic experience is the therapeutic time window, but actually the two months afterwards is all part of the window of time where you've made the brain more um, available or more sensitive to social information and to be re rewired for um, integrating um, these new concepts into their perception of themselves and their social environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we think it, it dramatically changes the way that um, people should be designing the clinical trials. Um, and then for people who are using these drugs recreationally, I think it's important to uh, emphasize that, you know, these drugs are very powerful and that what you are doing is essentially making your brain return to a sensitive state like you were a child. And so anything that you wouldn't show to a child, <laughs> you probably don't, you know, you want to treat your own brain with that kind of kid gloves, you know, carefulness after, when you're on these drugs because, or, and for, you know, several months afterwards, you are in a receptive state. And so you don't want to be, hanging out with people you don't trust who might, you know, injure you, who uh, might take advantage of you, might manipulate you. You know, you need to be careful of who you interact with um, 
after you know you're, you've taken one of these very powerful drugs. Well, I want to be respectful of your time too. So, so I'm wondering for a final question, I'd love to hear about some of that initial research that you mentioned at the beginning um, regarding the, um, the, I guess it was the endocannabinoid receptor. Yeah. Yeah. So we just, um, so we just published a paper. It came out in Neuron last week. Um, and um, that paper, we were looking at the two types of oxytocin neurons. So there, um, oxytocin neurons come in two flavors. There's the big ones that are called the magnocellulars and then the small ones that are called parvocellulars. And, um, you know, most everything that you've ever heard of about oxytocin is about the magnocellulars. So these are the ones that um, cause women, when they get, when they fire, they cause women to um, have contraction, uterine contractions and give birth. They're also responsible for the milk letdown reflex. They're sort of the big, big love neurons. So they're the ones that make you like fall in love with your partner and fall in love with your baby. And they cloud you, you know, you just, you're in love and everything is roses and you really just aren't able to um, necessarily cognitively evaluate things. You're just in love, right? So I call them right. the mad love neurons. Um, and then there are these parvocellular neurons, which up until our study came out, um, those parvocellular neurons had just been implicated in other things that have nothing to do with social behaviors. So um, reflex behaviors and temperature regulation, other things that uh, some cardiovascular stuff, but nothing um, directly relating to social. And so um, we wanted to do a better job of characterizing what's the difference between these two types of neurons. Um, but we had this hint that the parvocellular ones um, might be important for this type of peer-peer social interaction, this um, sort of measured love, if you will. And so this I imagine to be the, the kind of love that you feel for your group members, for your work colleagues, for um, your best friends, but not um, the kind of big, big love that you feel for your baby or, or your partner. And we think that this type of small amounts of oxytocin being released for that kind of love is important because when you're deciding on who you want to be your friends or who's going to be in your, your social group, you know, you want to like the people in your social group, but you also want to be able to evaluate whether or not they are going to be um, um, – you know, good colleagues, whether they're going to have your back when you need it, whether they're going to lie to you or um, take care of you, you know, you want to be able to have some ability to cognitively evaluate um, whether or not they're, they're a good member for your group. Okay. And so we had a lot of sort of ethological and comparative biology reasons to think that these two neurons might be um, encoding different aspects of social behavior, but we wanted to test that formally. So in order to do that, we did a bunch of experiments, which I'm not going to tell you about, um, that looked at all of the different ways that these neurons are different from each other in terms of where they are in the brain, where they're, what type of connections they make, what type of electrophysiological properties they have. Um, and then what we really wanted to know also was, do they, are they different in terms of the genes that they express, right? So this is um, something that we can now do with a bunch of really cool new molecular 
um, tools that we have and single cell RNA sequencing and molecular specification of oxytocin neurons. So we used a bunch of like cutting edge cool techniques that I also won't tell you about to be able to identify differences in the genes that the two cells um, express. And what we found is, is that there were, um, you know, over 180, I think was, um, yeah, 180 genes that were different between the two cells, so the magnocellular and parvocellular oxytocin neurons. And one of the two genes that was different between the two was the cannabinoid one receptor. And so this is the endogenous cannabinoid receptor that is expressed in the brain. And it turns out that the cannabinoid one receptor is expressed differentially. So lots, lots, lots of expression in the parvocellular smaller oxytocin neurons and not in the magnocellular oxytocin neurons. And because the parvocellular oxytocin neurons, we now have more direct evidence um, are the ones that are important for diseases like autism and um, are more are important for these peer-peer and social cognition types of social behaviors as opposed to the big, big love social behaviors in the magnocellular oxytocin neurons that don't express the, the cannabinoid receptor. I have this wild theory, which is totally not proven, just speculation <laughs> at this point, <laughs> that, um, you know, the reason that people get um, sort of paranoid when they smoke too much pot is because um, they're playing theory of mind games, crazy, like that, those cannabinoid receptors on the oxytocin neurons that are, you know, we think are important for, you know, theory of mind or cognitive empathy or these peer-peer social interactions are becoming hyper-stimulated. And so they start, you know, doing the I know what you know that you, I know that you know that I know that you know game so many times that it just freaks them out. That's my theory. Yeah, I, I think that's completely valid. That sounds really, because I think so much, so much of that experience, so much of that anxiety can be related to like, is every, you know, is everyone laughing at me? Do I fit in here? Yeah. Um, which is really like, you, you know, because we want to experience that sense of belonging. And right. it might yeah. trigger and that. And you're using those neurons to essentially play, you know, life poker with all the time, right? That's, right, that's what right. this social cognition is about, is like uh -huh. trying to guess what somebody else is thinking of you based mm -hmm. on what you know about what they know, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, wow. we'll see. I mean, I think yeah, that's fascinating. to really test that theory, um, we'll have to dig in a little bit more. But we also know that the cannabinoid, uh, like if we give endocannabinoids in the nucleus accumbens, that that uh, activates the same kind of plasticity that oxytocin in the nucleus accumbens does. And one of the things that we found in this study was the New, the sole source of oxytocin in the nucleus accumbens of a mouse is these parvocellular oxytocin neurons. The, the magnocellular neurons don't project to the nucleus accumbens. So we think that we're on the right track here um, and that there is an interesting connection between this oxytocin system and the cannabinoid, um, endocannabinoid system um, in the nucleus accumbens. But, you know, to be continued. Wow. Wow. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to learning more about that in time. Yeah. Research. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, this has been so fascinating and, and all over the map. So I really appreciate your time and, and all of sharing all your fascinating research. Oh, th thank you for, for having me. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.